It's very, it's very okay. because if you don't talk about containers, China wouldn't exist. Contemporary China wouldn't exist. Deng Xiaoping wouldn't have succeeded. None of that, none of that would be possible if it weren't for the ISO container standard, which is the thing that enabled the global manufacturing economy. We've got this crazy thing right now where the most legitimate rules that we have for dealing with some of the most important environmental changes for some of the most important human rights problems, particularly uh, questions about common labor standards, are standards that have been developed not by governments, but by the ISO. Mostly because the U.S. won't sign. Yeah, mostly because the U.S. has, has for 40 years backed away from uh, engaging in any treaty making about uh, the problems that are caused by our contemporary global economy. Standards, they're important. What are they? What's the deep history? To explore, we have the first couple of global standard studies, Joanne Yates and Craig Murphy, whose recent book, Engineering Rules, Global Standard Setting Since 1880, yes, that is 1880, not 1980, uh, was a fantastic introduction to the wonderful, wacky, and increasingly politicized world of global standardization. Today, I have with me Jacob, a junior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Welcome to China Talk, everyone. So you start the book with the first standardization activities in the late 1800s. What were these activities and how did they eventually lead to the creation of the IEC? So there were initially some activities around within individual engineering societies in different countries. There was also an attempt by uh, testing materials engineers academics uh, to get together across country lines um, in the background too. But there was a lot of this uh, national level societies. And then there was a, the IEC blew out of this. Um, oh, yeah, a set of electrical engineers. So the testing materials engineers were interested in testing the steel that went into rail, steel rails connecting things from one place to another. But electrical engineers, by which we don't mean computer engineers, we mean people who were engineering the electric lines that connected one place to another, power plants to the little light bulbs. Light bulbs, what a great idea. They decided in 1904 that, wow, we need standards for all of those electrical systems that are going to exist around the world so that the power plants can connect to the wires and the wires can connect to your home and the wires in your home can connect to the electric light bulb. <laughs> I think that the, this whole movement, the scientists, the electrical scientists had been defining terms for a while, meeting occasionally in international get-togethers and defining terms. But they were the ones who suggested that maybe the electrical engineers <laughs> should actually create an association across these countries so they could make it so that they could actually transmit electricity across lines and things like that. So, And they meant to create this at the St. Louis World's Fair, which you all know is a place where the ice cream cone was invented. I have two threads uh, to throw at you, and you can pick one or the other or both. Elting Morrison from Know How to Nowhere. 
Uh, does this book ring a bell at all for you guys? Yes, but I haven't read it. Okay. So it, it, in the in the sort of early chapters, uh, so Elting Morrison, more famous for Men, Machines, and Modern Times. This is another kind of short collection of his. Uh, uh, MIT, right? I think. Um, anyways, so he has these fantastic chapters of American engineers in the uh, early 19th century, sort of slowly figuring out how to build dams and canals and railroads basically on their own. And the kind of knowledge transfer would be like, they would send a letter to a British guy and there would be like some like nice British engineer who every once in a while would say like, oh, you should use like this kind of mud, not that kind of mud because I've built like 50 canals and I know that like this kind of mud is a disaster and will like make it fall apart. And in, in sort of watching that slow kind of institutionalization of engineering knowledge where, you know, everyone who works on the Erie Canal kind of gets that like firsthand training. And once, and once you kind of build that, uh, you build those friend groups of people who are, you know, living in the, in the forest for 20 years together, then you start kind of getting more and more sort of knowledge transfer as well as institutionalization, because these, as you said, these folks are friends. They want to engage with other folks and they want to learn what's going on from the rest of the world. So I'm curious, like even going back before the 1880s, to what extent did you have this sort of uh, national as well as international engineering knowledge transfer? And what do you think was the tipping point um, that uh, led this stuff to start to get institutionalized? So I think that the tipping point was the professionalization yeah. of engineering fields. The fact that they started seeing themselves as professionals. And one of the characteristics of professionals as they were seen then was that A, they were supposed to be gentlemen. And I do mean gentlemen and not ladies. Um, and they were supposed to be they were supposed to do something in the public right. service. In the public so doctors were allowed to be gentlemen because actually making people healthy was okay. Um, barristers were allowed to be gentlemen, supposedly. Um, you know, it's hard to say that they ever were lawyers. Right? Were allowed to be gentlemen because they were contributing to legislation and the public good and co conflict resolution and that sort of thing. And engineers wanted to be gentlemen, like uh, professors who were already gentlemen. Um, and they wanted to contribute to the public good. Right. They wanted to have something they could do for the public good. And they, they recognized that standard setting was something they could do. One of the ways, things that triggered it, for example, in the U.S., um, steamboats, the, the, the boilers exploded. Slave boilers blew up a lot. And it was really horrific. You don't want to hear what happened to all the people on the steamboats. It was just horrific. So it was one of the things that uh, a group of engineers and scientists at the Franklin Institute in, in Philadelphia. Philadelphia in the U.S. decided that they were going to come up with standards to, to keep this from happening. Figure and, out how thick the boilerplate should be before it blows up. Right. Uh, and then you write that down and you have to write the boilerplate down about the boilerplate and you've got a standard. <laughs> and then the uh, Germans, uh, the German standards setting body, the first, its first standard was the same thing. It was, it was boilers, steam boilers. So, you know, there, there was this sense of you could help with some public safety things, but Quickly, actually, they turned away from just doing things like that for public safety and started into doing 
standardizing for all for industrialization for you know pieces of industrial equipment for all kinds of things uh, screw threads <laughs> probably what uh, it, it's the iconic thing that you standardize with the threads of screws because it used to be that whatever machinist made your machine had a one of a kind screw so if you lost a screw you had to go back to him to get that replaced and at a certain point, it became some desire to be able to go to someone else for that screw. So trying to get a standard screw thread was incredibly important. It's still important. Yeah. So yeah. An another, another thread I want to throw at you. Uh, yes. Ona Hathaway, Ian Shapiro, the internationalists. I don't know if this is... Yes. Get it. He's not me. That's me. Yep. Um, the, the sort of... So this book, which was I might have been the first podcast I ever did on China Talk, go back in the archives, folks. Oh my um, god, had yeah. had a um uh, had had a real a, a great illustration of the same era of like of like pre World War One, all of these gentlemanly men meeting around the world, outlawing war. Uh, I guess pre and post World World War One, and kind of thinking that sort of international cooperation and like. People, as you said, speaking civilly to each other and sitting in rooms for a long period of time could like reach, um, you know, outcomes that Thucydides would think was impossible. Uh, oh, I'm curious to, to what extent did those sort of like international peace and like global development strains intersect? Well, they, they intersect. I, I mean, there's a great book by a guy named Murphy called International Organization and Industrial Change. 1994, which links these two things. And it, it turns out that um, conferences about international cooperation of different sorts started after the Napoleonic Wars in 1815. And they would have these conferences of the great powers, and they would come together and talk about how we could make sure that the world would be just run by us. But at the same time, you started to have a uh, social movement organizations and even crazy different types of private organizations meet at the same time as the great powers are meeting. And that's where you actually started to get the first scientists coming around and sitting around and saying, let's define the different electrical terms that we're going to use. But it's also when you've got the Esperanto people coming together and figuring out, let's create a world language. And it's when you got organizations like the uh, international law associations, who were these crazy people who thought we could have something called international law that would actually make peace instead of determining just how people should kill each other. Um, so they're all meeting actually at the same kinds of places. So moving on to the second wave of standardization, you wrote this really fascinating section um, on standardization during World War II, where you illustrate the massive costs that the Allies incurred because their screws, their spark plugs, their rifles and ammunition, they didn't fit together and they were manufactured to different standards in each country. Um, so I'm just curious, did Germany and Italy encounter similar challenges on the axis? Oh, that's really good. What a good question. That's a really good you question. We didn't look at that. We didn't really look at it, but there's no reason to think they didn't. Um, yeah, I don't know where we would find uh, archives that would show that. It would be fascinating. We we <laughs> do we do know one thing though the um the the German speaking international standardizer who sort of preserved an attempt a an interwar attempt to create uh, 
a global standardization organization, Mr. Huberoff. Mr. Huberoff was kind of a proto-fascist and was given wonderful uh, medals by Mussolini, which suggests, although he was Swiss, which is an odd part, part about this, but it suggests to me that perhaps there was a little bit more inter-discussion between the, uh, the Italians and, and the Germans than there was. It's a good question, and I wish I knew the answer. Oh. I think it became so clear the U.S. and British problems were uh, widely discussed in Congress and, and other places like that, which is why we know so much about them. Right. right. I'm pretty sure. sure in Adam Tooze's Wages of Destruction, he has a little riff on how Germany was actually really, really late to standardization. And maybe they kind of got with the, like it, within Germany. So maybe they had got with the program by, uh, by World War II, but that was... Uh, yeah, they yes. by World War II. They so they were behind initially. They were very much behind. But then, but then they kind of jumped ahead at a certain yes. point. Uh, they, be, they made standards much more rapidly and they were very systematic and, and they shared their standards with the Soviet, the Soviet Union in, uh, in the interwar period. And, and that's what part of how the Soviet Union was able, able to industrialize as, as quickly as it, as it did. That's fantastic. Um, I was wondering if maybe could you tell us the story? It seems like we're leading into this. Um, could you tell us the story of how the ISO, uh, the International Organization for Standardization, was negotiated in those years following World War II? You want to start? Yeah, I, I guess I, I I could start. So so the 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 allies, in particular the 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 British and the Americans, um, were more obsessed about the fact that their inner workings were not. It just wasn't taking place ter terribly well. Partially because the troops and the planes and all that sort of those two allies were working on the same in the same places in in the um, the the Western front rather than the, the Eastern front. And they started to have a series of meetings in New York and, and in, in Canada to figure out what a post-war inter truly international organization would look like. And they quickly brought in, um, most of the allied members of organizations that, that were standardization associations and, and, and allies was understood more broadly, it was understood as uh, all of the members of the United Nations, which is what the alliance was called, which included a number of Latin American countries, of, of course, uh, and of course, the Soviet Union. Um, and then there was a big question of how about how many of the neutrals and which neutrals during the war would you bring in? And it was real easy to decide that you needed to bring in the Swiss and the Swedes, they're kind of big in high technology. And because of the way the war ended, it was okay to bring in the Italians pretty quickly, but it was a little bit harder to bring in the Spanish who were neutral, but not really neutral. Um, you know, there were, there were little difficulties of, of this sort, but they held an, held a number of meetings ultimately in 1946 in London, really at the same time as the first meeting of the United Nations, which was also in London in 1946, they held a meeting that created the International Organization for Standardization. And then they very quickly after that, they, they started to make relations with some of the former German standardizers who were becoming um, 
anti-Nazi very quickly and, you know, trying to make sure that they had a truly global organization. Um, and they set up headquarters in Geneva next to the International Electrotechnical Commission. Uh, and everything was just fine. So it was interesting, actually, the, the location, the pick of Geneva. Geneva, they, they voted uh, uh, several cycles of votes trying to agree on where they should be headquartered. And uh, they beat Montreal Montreal by one vote, finally. <laughs> so it could have been in Montreal. <laughs> yeah. So, mm. But. But, and it was kind of, it was very nice because one of the people who was still pushing all of this, who is one of our favorite electrical engineers in the whole story, is this chap from, from Great Britain, although actually from the Channel Islands, named Charles Lemaistre, who uh, was fluent in French and British from, and, and English from the very beginning. And he, he had long been the General Secretary of the International Electrotechnical Commission. And, IEC. Uh, the IEC, and he pushed for making sure the ISO uh, was going to going to take place and be created. And he and he then was involved with the ISO also as kind of a transitional figure until his death in 1953. But he kind of covered the whole early period. And you um you brought up this point that they wanted it to be truly international. I'm curious, to what extent did they succeed in those early days? They actually brought in the Germans uh, very well and early because they knew the German standardizers. Actually, the head, the leading figure of the German standardizers actually led the um, committee that of self-reflection for German engineers in which they uh, castigated themselves for having followed the Nazi thing and 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 you know he led that whole effort and then i mean they all knew him they all could work with them the germans were invited to both germans <laughs> to sit in on the meetings even before they were officially allowed back in you know there were still arguments because belgium for example really objected to you could understand why they were right for, for for obvious political reasons but but the heart of this movement believed in internationalism and that you have to have all the stakeholders at the table, no matter who they are. And for industrialization, Germany was a stakeholder. You could right. ignore it. So be, and it did work. Becoming more truly international. I mean, if, if, if you see the early thing in 1946, the number of country members that existed at, at the time was similar to the number of national members of uh, the United Nations, but decolonization is taking place as well. And in a way, the ISO was ahead of decolonization, just as it was sort of ahead of in, in make, making peace. So the ISO had, even though it was formed in 1946, had an Indian uh, member because there were Indian engineers who were ready to go into an organization of this sort. Actually, Palestine was re represented at the first ISO conference, and there were two sets of engineers in the Palestinian delegation, as you might imagine. Uh, but again, Palestine was certainly, uh, was, was certainly a colony at that point. And Israel, which is still a, a member of the ISO, is considered a founding member, even though there was certainly no Israel yet. So you write about Ole Suren, 
who as general secretary of uh, the ISO sought to expand the pace and scope of international standardization. And Surin must have traveled to dozens of countries as general sec secretary, but you specifically call out his two trips to China in yeah. 1976 and 78. What was so significant about these trips? Well, China, after uh, the Chinese revolution, um, dropped out of, or was, one could say excluded, but no, more, it was more the case that actually they, they didn't participate in either the IEC or the ISO. They came back into the cut under, under the communist government, came back into the IEC, the electrical engineers by 1957. But in the general standardization organization, there wasn't strong Chinese interest until Deng Xiaoping came to power and was, and became very concerned about, about China becoming a major player in the, in the, uh, global economy. And Steretti went to China immediately after, well, immediately before and immediately after, in a set, in a sense, he was already promoting the idea of Chinese membership in 1976. And he, he let, um, the change in government to help Chinese engineers who were interested in rejoining uh, ISO to immediate, immediately. Uh, so it was accepted, China was accepted into IEC, no, into ISO in, um, in 1977. And he went there in 76 and then again in 78 to kind of solidify the relationship. Yeah. Um, should we move on to the third wave or do you have anything else you want to talk about in the second wave? What no containers? <laughs> we we, we you really should talk about containers in the second wave. It's very it's very okay. because if you don't talk about containers, China wouldn't exist. Contemporary China wouldn't exist. Deng Xiaoping wouldn't have succeeded. None of that. None of that would be possible if it weren't for the ISO container standard, which is the thing that enabled the global manufacturing economy. And it was also Seren, you know, Seren, when he, when he came into ISO at the very beginning, he had sort of like four or five things that he wanted to do. He wanted to make sure there were standards bodies everywhere in the world. And he wanted to make sure that there were standards associated with some new or possibly opening technologies. One of which was the computer <gasps> crazy idea that that would be a global technology of some sort you know, when you're sitting around in 1960. And then the second technology was the container, <laughs> the idea he was a Swede, right? So he cared about the water and all that sort of stuff. But the, the idea that we could ship goods in these little metal boxes and every ship wouldn't have to have 250,000 separate little packages in, brought in and brought out. And you'd have these great big boxes and you could lower the costs of shipping globally. That was one of Stern's major concerns. His last major concern, by the way, was standards for the environment. Uh, he must have known that once we had all of those containers <laughs> and the internet, that we would destroy the oceans and destroy the atmosphere. And it would be good to have the, yeah, anyway. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the uh, creation of shipping container standards? And I, when I was reading that section, for example, the, the part that I found particularly fascinating was how they negotiated 
this disagreement, I think, in the, the length of the shipping container. Um, <laughs> yeah, do, do you want to maybe tell us a little bit about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. So the, the whole attempt to standardize containers started in the U.S., and there were two companies that were already, who, who had already come up with proprietary uh, standards just for their own fleets of containers, one with 35-foot containers uh, and one with 24-foot containers. But when the com committee was brought together, there were committees that had, you know, there were committees looking at the dimensions, committees looking at the wall strength, all kinds of things, how you hook them together Corners, yeah. and so on. But the, the dimensions one, the person heading it, got it into his head that he really liked the idea of having them be 20 and 40. And then you could also make the 10 and 30 standards so that any combination of 10, 20, 30, 40, you could, if you had 40 feet on the truck, you could put any co uh, combination uh, of the others. So he decided, he sort of pushed and thought this was very rational and ultimately everyone agreed on this 10, 20, 30, 40 standard for links. And the problem was that, you know, these two companies that already existed had, it, it made theirs obsolete in one sense. Although they could still use them independently by themselves, they wouldn't get the advantage of having them circulating in the world, which is a big advantage overall. So, so they lost. But even though they lost, that, that to me, the fascinating part of this story is that after they lost, <laughs> at a later stage, when they were um, doing the corner, they were standardizing the corners that held together containers on a ship. You know, when you stack stacks of those containers up, they had to be fastened at the corners. And at a certain point in that process, both in the national and the international standards process, they looked at the available corners and they argued and argued. And the one that's, that everyone liked best was the one used by one of those two companies. But they wanted it to be a slightly different dimension because the dimensions were different, but they wanted uh, that. But it was patented. And so one of the people on the committee who had formerly worked with that company and had helped design those corners went back to the owner and asked him, can you please give up? The patent right to this, so we can take it and put and, it into the standards and make it put it in the standards. We have to change the dimensions, but then put it into the standards. And amazingly enough, um, he agreed, and so he gave up that patent completely. The company and the guy gave up the patent. That patent was um, abrogated, and they they used that standard. At, it became an open standard for these corners. So, all right, finally. You know, we've talked about the IEC, we've talked about the ISO, and finally we get to the third wave of standard setting organizations that emerged in response to computer networking and accompanied the acceleration of technological change. And so in what, what ways did these organizations differ from their predecessors? So IETF was the first one of these, and it was sort of an accidental standard setting organization. It was not... Uh, created uh, to be an official standard setting organization. But when, when DARPA spun off the internet, the civilian internet, they helped them just establish this two-tier system with some general strategy committees, a general strategy committee, and then a committee of people who could work on the standards. But they didn't see themselves as any big deal. And then because in a 
in a standards war that the internet standard, TCP IP, which connects all the internet nodes, um, that actually came to the top, rose to the top and became the de facto standard because the efforts in ISO were taking too long and, and, got, and got terminally bogged down. So uh, the companies, the little companies out there were desperate to start making and making money on products around the internet. So they actually started defaulting to this TCP IP. And, and so it became the de, de facto standard. And then IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force, right, became the de facto standard setter. Now, it differed in a, a few important ways from the other standards organizations. The other standards organizations, so first of all, it had no official membership. IETF's rules still say that anyone can come to a meeting. You know, there's no We've member- been to I- IETF meetings. I mean, you know, what do we know about electric membership? <laughs> okay. So, you know, there, first of all, no membership. And they believe in what they call rough consensus and running code. So rough consensus has, they say you don't have to have complete consensus. You don't have to go through this very long process that the traditional ones do to make sure everyone has gotten their say. You just have to have rough consensus. They don't vote. They hum to see who, who which group hums louder is one of their ways of judging consensus. So, so they're a little weird on that one too. And, you know, in, in general, they considered themselves extremely democratic for all these reasons. Um, the odd thing is that from our point of view, there's, there's one thing missing that I think is, is a potential problem. And that is they don't have a, a rule that you have to have a balance of stakeholders. So if you look at any of the other standards uh, organizations, they demand that you have a balance. So the easiest form of balance, which was what they originally had in a lot of them, was you had to have the producers, the buyers, the, the customers, and unaffiliated engineers who could stand for, in for the public good. And there was no longer a requirement for that in IETF. Anyone could go to any meeting. So it is, at least in theory, possible for, for example, Microsoft to send hundreds of its engineers to a particular meeting where they really cared and about the allowed us. Yeah, and, and, and win a, 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 a standard they wanted. So, you know, it, it, it's interesting in a lot of ways. The other thing that's very much a contrast between the IETF and the other ones we talked about, um, if you look at IEC and ISO, you, you get the top hats in the early period and you get suits and ties in the middle period. And IETF was sandals and t-shirts and shorts. Shorts. Um, so it, and it had a much more rut and tumble style of discussion. And, and it's, it's dominated it, more than the other organizations now. It tends to be dominated by uh, young men. Um, and it's typical. Uh, who are engineers that went to a small number of sets of universities, uh, like your own Carnegie Mellon, um, <laughs> that happened and, and her Joanne's MIT that happened to be in the global north. 
they think of themselves as being incredibly, incredibly democratic, but they have none of the kinds of things that Ole Steren wanted to make sure, which was that there would be people sitting in the meetings representing the people of Africa. There'd be people sitting in the meetings representing rural people of Brazil, etc. They might be the one engineer from the world, but they, they would they would be there. So it's it's quite different in the, in that. Yeah. Do you want to hear about? Um, W3C or was IETF enough? Let's do it. W3C. Oh, well, it's different. <laughs> so W3C is an interesting case. Um, I did a, a closer case study of it and actually participated, sort of, observed at least all of their meetings, um, all of their phone meetings and, uh, and read all of their emails for a five-year period um, to follow one particular uh, standards committee drew, and it was a fascinating process. It's the important committee, the committee for web cryptography standards. So, yeah. you know, big deal. Do you think you could provide just like a one sentence summary or something of web cryptography just for the listeners? Web crypto API? Yeah. Okay. The particular committee I looked at was the web cryptography API working group, and they were trying to make a standard. API, a, a, an interface for computer programmers and users that would, in which you could do, you could create cryptographic systems for different, so each company might use these tools and then create uh, security for their particular application. So it's the, it was a toolkit for security. Yeah. And, uh, but W3C is an interesting case because it, it as a committee is quite different as an organization is quite different from IETF. First of all, it's a consortium. So it borrowed something that had also been going on in this period as, as technology started changing faster and faster, companies started bypassing some of the standards organizations because they took so long and they created, came together in their own consortia and made some decisions. <laughs> came up with something and then tried to sell it to the rest of the world. W3C calls itself a consortium. And there are paying members, just as if these other ones. Companies are paying members, organizations too. But they are different from those consortia in most consortia like that, in that they're open to any organization that wants to be a part of it. And they have a sliding scale and dues. So the big company might have started out at 50,000, but little things started out at 5,000. So, you know, they made it more accessible. They also created a set of rules that look actually surprisingly like the, the, the rules and the stages of a traditional um, standard setting body like ANSI, which is the American. And, and they, they're even converging over time. So yeah, they, they become more similar over time. So they, they look very similar. They are not, well, I, I can say from experience that a lot of the people who come to these meetings wear jeans and t-shirts. <laughs> they don't have the quite the um, wild kind of <laughs> meetings that go on with IETF. They're a little more staid in their style. And, and the, uh, one of the other things that's like the older organizations. Wait, wait, wait. What's, a, what's a wild IETF meeting? Let's stay on uh, that for a second. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> What's the word I'm trying to come up with? I don't know what the word is you're trying to come up with. Um, we talked about freewheeling. Freewheeling. Free That's, free free That's a good way to put it rather than wild. So IETF was known for having freewheeling meetings where people 
would use all kinds of language that would not be accepted in polite society in the older traditional ones. And they were, and they often had what one of my uh, uh, people in um, W3C referred to as sharp elbows. And they would have had people get yelled down and told they're stupid. And, you know, so it's it's really a much more (laughs) aggressive style of interacting in in IETF. And W3C is not quite that aggressive, typically, although, you know, what in the particular committee I looked at, we did see some of that um, aggression only in email from one person. So there was a point where it almost became a flame war and it had to be, uh, uh, the, the chair of the committee had to tell them to stop all communication <laughs> for three days so they could uh, get their tempers back in check. Uh, so, but W3C, I think, is a little bit more organizationally coherent than IETF is. And it does have some... That's an understatement. Yeah. And it does have some rules about, uh, a few more rules about balance than the than the um, IETF has. So, but it's funny that the, the electrical engineers, the computer scientists and engineers who are on the committees, they both consider... In the third wave, what we find is that it's not that these people are devoted to standardization um, for its own in its own right, which the earlier two stages were. They are in this because they believe in the internet yeah. or they believe in the web, and so now the the devotion has shifted from standardization per se to the technology that they're trying to standardize. They think they're helping the world by helping make. Um, the internet and the web a better place. The other thing about W3C is that it is, you know, that IETF talks about having no kings or blah, 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 blah. W3C was invented by Tim Berners-Lee. He was the one who created the code for the web in the first place and gave it away free. Uh, He's a real believer, true believer. And he created the standardization organization and he made himself the candidates that, that because there's an appeal process that exists within W3C and the appeal process, this will change over time, but the appeal process is to Tim Berners-Lee. Right. So, so it, yes, that's the most unusual thing about W3C, that, that Tim Berners-Lee himself has more control than any individual has in any, any of the other or traditional or otherwise. But uh, as he said, uh, a good king um, sets up a bureaucracy and then steps back and lets it run itself. And most of the time, I think he does succeed in doing that. I don't know that it's all the time, but and I don't know what I don't know, but I could tell that, um, you know, he does seem to be most of the time try to stay out of the weeds. Benevolent overlord. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, every once in a while, it's useful to have him. There's another set of issues which are, are becoming, are, are adopting the standard setting mode for the first time because we don't have any other options right now. You want to talk a little oh, bit yeah, about I mean, I, environmental? Yeah, I mean, to get, again, to go back to Orly Sturen, um, you know, way back in the 60s, he was saying, okay, we have to have computers, we have to have, we have to have shipping containers, we have to make sure everybody in the world is there. Uh, 
But he also said, we have to do things like the environment. And we've got this crazy thing right now where the most legitimate rules that we have for dealing with some of the most important environmental changes for some of the most important human rights problems, particularly uh, questions about common labor standards, are standards that have been developed not by governments, but by the ISO. Mostly because the U.S. won't sign. Yeah, mostly because the U.S. has, has for 40 years backed away from uh, engaging in any treaty making about uh, the problems that are caused by our contemporary global economy. So you've got to find something else and, and what ISO does looks like a better way to do it. Well, at least it, it's the only game. In it's town the only game right in town. Now. I, I mean, mean, it's not perfect. It's it's not great, but it does do a little bit of good. And that's more than anything else is doing now. So, you know, at the, at, the, at the end, right in the last chapter of the book, we talk at one point about how uh, John Lewis, the kind of civil rights icon, great labor union leader, um, ends up near the end of his life being convinced by a standard setter from ANSI that he should have congressional hearings about how, uh, what has since the time of the book, the book uh, was finished has become the global ISO standard for labor conditions, how that should be something that the United States as a government is embracing. And when you think about it, to have someone like Lewis who really would want there to be laws or things enforced by unions uh, saying that the best that we can come up with is the sort of thing that comes out of the uh, out of the ISO. That's a it's somewhat depressing. Uh, significant. But significant because it actually is at least something. Yeah. Yeah. So we've come all the way now from the uh, late 1800s all the way to the present. Um, and I was hoping to ask a couple of questions kind of focused on this really thorny issue that's emerged of undue influence in international standard setting. Um, and when it comes to standard setting for emerging tech industries, you argue in your book that IETF and W3C and these other third wave um, standard setting organizations will probably be more influential than the traditional first and second wave players. Um, and, you know, maybe that's debatable. Um, but it's debatable. But I was so so. Do do you think these third wave SDOs again, IETF, W three C, are are they more or less able to repel potential undue influence compared to their predecessors? And um, brought up before the question of balance requirements. So I think those two, um, we're not seeing. I, I have not heard of any undue influence going on at IETF or W three C. And part of the reason is that. Um, language, <laughs> frankly, if you're talking about Chinese undue influence in particular, is that, would I be correct in assuming that's in your question? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, maybe this is kind of just like an aside here, but um, I think for, for that question, kind of just like generally interested about, the, um, about any form of undue influence, whether or not it's for, from China, but that's certainly the motivating factor behind the question. Yes. So I think so. the danger in an IETF is that there could be undue influence from a particular company that floods the, the meetings with it. But 
In terms of geopolitical, who has undue influence, at this point, IETF is, is still, although it's trying to be, to think of itself as global, it's basically a Western, white male, Western dominated uh, group of people who are involved in it. So I, I think W3C has done a little better at bringing, trying to bring in Europe and Asia. But the fact is that even though they're better at that, I saw in the in the committee that I studied that the Koreans, there were four Korean members who didn't get to participate much, A, because of time um, zone problems. Time zone problems meant that, you know, they would have to come at three o'clock in the morning and B, because of language skills. They could not speak well enough in this kind of technical setting to get their ideas across. So um, they, they didn't have influence in those. I think in the, even if you go to ISO and, and IEC, I think there part of the problem is that the undue, undue influence is with it. <laughs> American companies and European companies are not um, supporting as many of their people to go be part of the standards process as they used to. We need to step up our game to push back, not to have a different game, not to have the government controlling who, what they say, when. It's the companies that need to be uh, sending people to that, to, to these meetings. In, the, in, in chapter six of the book, I talk about the Americans, Americans who did radio frequency interference standardizing. They had to learn to participate in, in European standard setting at that point. Well, I think in some ways, uh, Again, uh, we need to both us and now the, the Europeans to a lesser extent too, need to put more effort into being engaging with these um, standard setting organizations and pushing back because the only way they, the way they can lose is just not sending people and having, if China, for example, organizes its people, tells, you know, the government tells them what their line is going to be, and then they go in and push that line. Uh, the only, they're, they're not going to win if everyone else is coming in and having their different lines and pushing back. They can't dominate it. The whole system, the traditional system at least, is set up in a way that a given entity can slow down the process, but they can't push their own through if everyone else is participating. But if Jersey participating, then you've got a problem. Yeah. So, yeah, please. It, the, the one place where questions of undue, undue influence are, is really relevant, is in consortia, company consortia that are dealing with brand new technologies. And it is possible to imagine, and we've got had some examples of, of this, where when amount to company consortia that are concerned with things like 5G, um, have a situation where one government, let's call it China, uh, is informing Chinese firms that happen to be part of the consortia that they all must kind of vote for parts of a standard that are those that are coming from and benefit a particular Chinese firm. And that is, you know, consortia are all these kind of new types of organizations. Their legal status is usually as a, a company existing under the law of one country or another. Um, a 
maintaining a rule that the, that all of the companies are truly independent within a consortium is a very, very difficult thing to do. That's a real issue. A lot of the other things that people talk about as issues of, of, um, undue influence. Traditionally, American companies would say, and, and there, this is a, a, a reasonable thing, that in many ISO type meetings, the problem that you sometimes run into is the Europeans, because the European, the European Union essentially makes sure that there is coherence and in standard setting in Europe, and that there really is the equivalent of one European standard. And they get 20 votes in an, yeah, a, that's what the American, that's what the American, what the American companies are, are the most likely right, going to be talking about because they, you know, the United States gets one vote. That's a real issue. Some big people deal with it. Things like, um, finding that suddenly, uh, the directors, uh, the people who have, uh, the presidency, which is kind of an honorary title in things like the ISO um, happens to suddenly be Chinese yeah, that's it, right. is not a really big deal. I mean, those, though that job isn't a terribly important job. Um, we, you know, you know anyway, the person who's important, important in is the, the executive director, right? It's the executive director. So the uh, Ole Stearns and the Charles Lemaistres, um, that we talk about in the book, they aren't the ones that there's. They're not president for one year or two years. They're, they're, they're there for a decade. They're the deputy. They're the secretary that does that, you know, runs the whole thing for, you know, and, and, and you decades can, and a time. You can see that America, some Americans and Europeans are surprised now that we have had some executive directors who are from Japan or China uh, and not so new. We haven't had any, ISO doesn't yet happen. Neither of the big ones have have had a Chinese executive director. I think that's not no. I but I, ITU's ITU T has and yeah. yeah. But so ITU is different though. I it's mean, a right? We keep we have to keep that in mind. It's a different kind of organization. ITU is intergovernmental, and it has this set of standards bodies by the side of it um, that operate in a very similar way. Yeah, that imitate the ISOs and IECs and how they operate. But there's still, it's the government who determines who's on that committee. And that's that and makes it inherently different um, than ISO, where it, the, the U.S. delegation to ISO is, the government has nothing to do with it. It's the um, ANSI or going down another level, if it's a, a committee around a, um, electrical thing, it would be the IEEE that would have, um, um, the choice. So it's, it's technically driven, uh, rather than governmentally driven. What happens if this all falls apart? If, um, Ooh. if we end up having so much politicization and so much kind of government attention and focus that the, the magic of these organizations and the global the globalization, which has been able to be unlocked uh, through these organizations, end up ends up starting to reverse. I yeah. think I think there is a danger yeah. in that, and I think it, I mean that's the inflection point in this third wave that I and and I don't know which way it's going to go yet, but it does worry me because yeah. there is the chance that um, if if this system falls apart, you need something new. Now, some people would argue that 
having governments be more involved isn't necessarily a bad thing. So for example, with um, global warming, they might, some people would argue that until we get the governments in there and actually mandating things, it's, it can't be enough. Uh, so it, there may be realms in which it, in fact, it, many, it's a good thing. Many of these, the new areas, environment, human rights, et cetera, probably better if governments are actually involved in them. The problem with technical standards is governments aren't very good at it. Yeah. I mean, they don't have the expertise. It's, you know, just think about it for a moment. The gov governments are not going to be hiring for and sitting in government ministries people who have the highest technical knowledge of, the, of, of different fields. They just don't have that. And the other thing is that for democratic governments, democratic governments have always hated setting standards because somebody loses. Somebody, when a standard gets set, there's going to be some company somewhere or farmers in your state or whatever who are, are going to have built things to a different standard and suddenly those things will be worth a little bit less. That's why, I mean, the, you know, there's sort of the, the basic American standard story is that the constitution has right in it that the United States government is supposed to be concerned about at, at least measurement standards and other related things, implying industrial standards. Washington went to Congress uh, and in his first address and said, one of the things you need to do right now is get, get all those standards. And Congress has never wanted to do that because somebody's ox gets gored if, if uh, standards are met. And that's true in other democratic countries as well. So the likelihood is if the current set of systems that we have fall apart, the standards are not going to get set. That's really what the, the likelihood is. And if, if the standards, if the, if the ideology of the old standard centers is at all correct, that means that probably the global economy, the economy is not going to work as well. Um, could you tell us a bit about Wang Ping and Chinese standard setters? Sure. So, so Wang Ping is a, is a person that, who is in his 60s, late 60s, early 70s, who is uh, deeply respected by people across the, the standard-setting community in China. He has had a long career in the, the uh, official government standards organization. He's done standard-setting in uh, computer areas and in, in uh, quality control areas. And he's he himself is like one of the great historians of standard setting in China, uh, in the world. I mean, hey, not just because he's he's very he's very he's very good at at at, at this stuff. He's a you know he's a colleague of ours certainly in that little part of his life. Um, and he he talks about the the way in which in China there is you know a process of moving toward a different kind of standardization system. Uh, that is typical, has been typical of all of the countries that move from being middle-income societies to being one of the major uh, industrial powers. And it, the, South Korea, for example, has gone through this process. Japan has gone through that process earlier, where it sort of starts out as the, a somewhat government-mandated uh, idea of standard setting, 
turns into a system that is supposed to be a stakeholder standard setting system where the companies actually operate. And then you start thinking about, well, how are our standards going to play in the world? You know, we're, we're actually going to be part of this game of creating international standards. And then you can kind of go back to something the way Ole Steren talks about that, you know, there are different models of what kind of standardization might be in different countries in the world. And for Wang Ping, he says, you know, there is one version of that probably many people in China, including probably himself, although he hasn't said that, uh, is that um, we would like China to be like Germany. We'd like China to be a place where China is a major global standard setter, primarily because China creates the best standards. That's the German thing. I mean, it's, boy, it's sneaky of those guys to, to, to do that. It's just, it's just really sneaky. The companies devote a lot of money to it. They the system is coordinated with the cooperation of government in the sense the government doesn't get in the way and put in, in crazy laws that, said, that, that would make it hard to have a coordinated system, that, that sort of thing. And German standards often in many fields become global standards. I think that's the kind of goal that a number of the standard setting figures in China really want. And Wang Ping wants to work through organizations <laughs> like ISO and IEC. Just like the Germans do. Right. Just, you know, ju just like the Germans do. Now, there are alternative, you know, there are alternative models. And one of the alternative models, which has never worked, would be the model of trying to somehow impose your standards upon other parts of the world, uh, in order to directly boost, have government try to directly boost their, their companies by doing that. That's another model. And I think they sometimes try to do that, but in the long run, that, that model doesn't, hasn't tended to work. Yeah, we don't, we can't point to a case where that, that's been, it's worked in the long run. Uh, but it is, a, it is a model that, that one can find people in governments everywhere kind of liking. <laughs> And right at the moment, I think the terrible thing is that the Chinese government seems to like that model. And the United States has a bunch of people in it who seem to think, wow, we should copy, we should try, we should copy that too. We should be trying to uh, somehow create a system where American companies' standards, whatever an American company is, are going to be the global standards and will break into markets in that way. But that's an, it's a bad idea if we fight it before it, 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 it was tried in the interwar years, it was tried by Germany, Britain, and the United States together. All three of them tried it a little bit and didn't work. Didn't work. So to ask a follow-up on that, um, the EU just released this standardization strategy. Yeah, um, which point, right yet. <laughs> yes, uh, okay. So right. maybe, maybe right. that part of the question is not, um, <laughs> I, so, so to re restart here, uh, you're at the executive room. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> no, I, I know the feeling. <laughs> um, we know a lot about the previous <laughs> round. Right. And, and we know what the list serves says. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, do you feel like the EU is at risk of trying to head in the same direction that the Americans seem to be thinking about? Well, I, I haven't seen their latest work on on this, but no, I think, uh, I don't think so. Do you? No, I don't think so either. I mean, the, the, I think that there is a, an, 
an interest in maintaining the cohesion of the European standard system so that they don't waste time creating too many, you know, having people create uh, competing standards. I think what has happened in Europe is that what Ole Steren would have called the German system of, of standard making has become the European system of standard making. That basically the EU is, has for quite a while been dominated by an idea that we will be the leaders, our European standards would be the ones that people would want to adopt everywhere and want to turn into ISO standards because they were the best. They're ne they can't do that in all fields. Now that's because nobody, even a place with 500 million people in their, in their market area, doesn't have firms that actually is in a position to have something that looks like the best standard in every field, but it's a strategy. It's a strategy that I could imagine, um, you know, if they, if they wanted me to come to Washington and tell them what to do, I would say that's probably the strategy that, uh, the U S should be following. And if China and Europe follow it too, all the better. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, uh, Gordon. Yeah. yeah. Any, uh, final concluding thoughts, reading list, life advice. Um, I, Jacob, I don't know if you've seen the book by Andy Russell, um, on standards. I don't know if I have. Yeah. I mean, it's a very America centric view and he, he admits that, you know, actually after he read Harbour, <laughs> he knows that actually he did leave, he, he was giving the American one too big a role in comparison to what was going on everywhere else. So, um, so it's a very America centric view, but, but still, since that's what your interest is, you might find it interesting. That if you're also, if you're interested in the kind of things that Graham has been is concerned about, which is trying to apply standard setting to areas where government actually should be involved. There is a guy named Harris Gleckman, G-L-E-C-K-M-A-N, who is a former UN officer who has written a book that's called something like stakeholder standard setting. I guess it's, I think that's the title. And Gleckman is part of a sort of social movement of people who are really mad at the UN right now for handing over more and more of things that should have been done by treaties to a consensus standard setting system. And it, it's a, it's an interesting group because it includes, it, you know, it includes like labor leaders from all over the world and most, you know, mostly democratic countries, Latin America and, uh, um, and Europe. Uh, it also includes Jeremy Corbyn, the, you know, the guy who was the leader of the labor party in Britain, who was trying to figure out what to do with the rest of his life. And he's decided that one of the things he's going to do with the rest of his life is, is really get mad at, at the secretary general of the United Nations for liking stakeholder standard setting. <laughs> and even though I, I'm making it sound like this is a little, that, that I might disagree with this, I think there may, I think that this is a group that's making a very, very important point about the limits of stakeholder standards. To close, we end every episode with a song. Is there a standards-related song 
whoa, that would be good. Um, let me think. You should have come up with something because you have them for your class. No, I do have what them for my class. Oh, oh, I yes, I did. You know, I, I, um, so one of the issues about standard setting is is the gendered stuff. Peggy Seegers, she's going to be an engineer. Uh, and so Peggy Seegers and then Pete Seegers, and then Pete Seegers sister, a uh, song from the 50s about uh, a woman engineer. Thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Great. When I was a little girl, I wished I was a boy. I tagged along behind the gang and wore me corduroys. Everybody said I only did it to annoy, but I was going to be an engineer. Mama told me, can't you be a lady? Your duty is to make me the mother of a pearl. Wait until you're older, dear, and maybe you'll be glad that you're a girl. A dainty as a dress and statue. Gentle as a Jersey cow. Smooth as silk, gives creamy milk. Learn to coo, learn to move. That's what you do to be a lady now. When I went to school, I learned to write and how to read some history, geography, and home economy. And typing is a skill that every girl is sure to need to while away the extra time until the time to breed. Then they had the nerve to say, but would you like to be? I says, I'm gonna be an engineer. No, you only need to learn to be a lady. The duty isn't yours for to try and run the world. An engineer could never have a baby. Remember, dear, that you're a girl. She's smart for a woman. I wonder how she got that way. You get no choice, you get no voice. Just stay mum, pretend you're dumb. And that's how you come to be a lady today. Then Jimmy come along and we set up a conjugation. We were busy every night, love and recreation. I spent the day at work so he could get his education. Well, now he's an engineer. He says, I know you'll always be a lady. It's the duty of my darling to love me all her life. Could an engineer look after or obey me? Remember, dear, that you're my wife. Well, as soon as Jimmy got a job, I began again. Then happy at me lay the year or so. And then the morning that the twins were born, Jimmy says to them, kids, your mother was an engineer. You owe it to the kids to be a lady Dainty as a dish rag, faithful as a child Stay at home, you got to mind the baby Remember you're a mother now Well, every time I turn around, it's something else to do It's cook a meal, mend a soft, sweep a floor or two I listen in to Jimmy Young, it makes me want to spew I was gonna be an engineer Don't I really wish that I could be a lady things that a lady's supposed to do I wouldn't even mind if only they would pay me and I could be a person too what price for a woman you could buy her for a ring of gold to love and obey without any pay you get a cook and a nurse for better or worse you don't need a purse when the lady is sold ah but now that times are harder and me Jimmy's got the sack I went down to Vickers, they were glad to have me back But I'm a third-class citizen, my wages tell me that And I'm a first-class engineer The boss, he says, we pay you as a lady 
You only got the job cause I can't afford a man With you I keep the profits high as maybe You're just a cheaper pair of hands You got one fault, you're a woman You're not worth the equal pay A bitch or a tart, you're nothing but heart Shallow and vain, you got no brain You even go down the drain like a lady today Well, I listened to my mother and I joined a typing pool I listened to my lover and I put him through his school But if I listen to the boss, I'm just a bloody fool And an underpaid engineer I've been a sucker ever since I was a baby As a daughter, as a wife, as a mother and a dear But I'll fight them as a woman, not a lady Fight them as an engineer 